I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Renata Saleko, a philosopher and sociologist. She is senior researcher at the Institute of Criminology at the Faculty of Law in Ljubljana and a professor at the School of Law, Birkbeck College, London. She has held numerous visiting professorships at Cardozo Law School in New York, Humboldt University, Berlin, and Duke University, Durham, among other institutions. Her work is interdisciplinary and focuses on bringing together law, criminology, the study of political ideologies, and psychoanalysis. I want to take a moment as I've just learned of the death of our dear friend and colleague, Dr. Nestor Bronstein. I know he was a dear friend of Renata's and I want to dedicate this episode to him. And I highly recommend reading all of Renata's and Nestor's works. They are truly, truly remarkable. This episode is also available to view on YouTube just visit Japar Films YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Trapar Film. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. Yeah, I'm working on a new book um, on apathy in today's times. Um, it's kind of a continuation of my last book, A Passion for Ignorance, because I see more and more people uh, closing themselves into their private lives, uh, switching off from the news, um, especially, you know, the kind of traumatic news related to current political battles. Also, the war in Ukraine, uh, even, you know, among uh, Russians, from Russian press, we can see that uh, a lot of uh, people inside Russia are switching off. Uh, They don't want to follow anymore. Of course, we have seen this kind of a situation before, before, you know, when the war started in Bosnia after, you know, a couple of months, uh, the observers also started switching off. And even 20 years ago, uh, Stan Cohen, um, he uh, he's unfortunately deceased, a sociologist from LSE, wrote um, a book, States of Denial, you know, where he analyzes kind of political situations where uh, people stop paying attention or, or start even denying, you know, the horrors around them. But I want to move in my current work also to the new social media. Uh, to see how they are influencing this switching off. Uh, we have seen, you know, with such a, a info pandemic, we can see, you know, on the one hand, you know, the steering of passions that are happening uh, with the new social media. But on, on the other hand, we also have the tunnel vision. And, you know, of course, now also some people who really don't want to have anything to do um, with the social media because of the problems that are related to it from, you know, the big data is easy manipulation being targeted constantly for advertising or, you know, even 
specific political belief. So how can an individual survive in this climate, I would say, the climate which, you know, actually when we are talking about climate is becoming more and more dangerous. We are truly living on the cusp of uh, probably one organization of society because of climate change, uh, possible new pandemics, uh, economic crisis, and all the crises related to neoliberalism, we can imagine, you know, radical changes in, in our civilization. How does our psyche cope? with this situation. And we have, of course, also seen an, a rise of phenomena um, like burnout, um, which is very much a phenomena linked to neoliberalism. The idea, idea which I worked on in, in my book, Tyranny of Choice, um, the idea that you know the ideology is constantly um, you know, calling you to be the master of your life, to be in charge of your choices. And of course, the underside is the feeling of guilt, the feeling of inadequacy, um, anxiety, uh, which are, I think, contributing to these new feelings um, of burnout, which is not related to being exhausted, uh, tired from really physically maybe working too hard, but is this emotional feeling um, which is a kind of a new type of a depression, which we observe pretty much everywhere around us. Absolutely, no, and that's such an that's such an important topic and point. How do we live right now and stay engaged, but also take care of ourselves in that way as well? Yes, which is difficult, you know, when the, when the situation is so negative around you. Quite often, we also have a situation of people um, embracing magical thinking or, you know, religions or various type of um, reasoning that comes from some obscure uh, cults. I have been studying a little bit uh, the, the new science of collapsology, um, which is sort of looking at the previous civilizations, why they collapsed, uh, which mechanisms sort of brought to the end of the civilizations. Some civilizations sort of collapsed after 300 something years. You know, this was uh, analyzed by quite a lot of um, archeologists, but you know, the psychological issues of course are more difficult to analyze now the past situations. However, you know, the ideas are that a certain kind of a collapse or a radical change in, in the civilization happens after, you know, some major sort of like uh, changes in the climate or illnesses, you know, which then contribute to the kind of the social collapse and the loss of population, the loss of identity, also the loss of identification with the leaders. Uh, the leaders often try to contain unrest, but, you know, they cannot... Uh, contain it constantly, uh, which is why quite a lot of aggression and violence might be the next uh, step. But for me, what is interesting are those moments of new beliefs when, you know, when we are under a threat, uh, let's say physical from the environment, new illness or whatever, these new beliefs uh, emerge uh, with vengeance and uh, uh, quite a passion for religious uh, thinking and I think we have seen that in the side in the time of the pandemics. Uh, I wrote a little book um, in Slovenian language, uh, Homo homini virus, uh, 
the idea was how did the virus change us uh, as humans and our intersubjective relationships. And, you know, for me, it was interesting to see this denial of the virus uh, at the beginning. Uh, and also, in some way, we can say we are living now in the fourth phase of, of the, the logic of denial. Um, this was interestingly analyzed in the 70s by a French uh, historian, Jean de Limont, who looked in the cases of medieval plague uh, and you know other pandemics after that, and he saw the kind of a fourth phase, four phases, where the first phase is denial, the second phase is searching for culprits, the third phase is living with the pandemic, somehow trying to protect yourself, and then the fourth phase is denial again. Often people start you know partying as if nothing is happening. Uh, or, you know, at the time of the Spanish flu um, uh, in the last century, in 2019, when there was still a lot of infection, they had one of the biggest festivals in Rio de Janeiro, uh, you know, party as much as you can. Of course, we have seen similar logics at work also in the HIV um, epidemics uh, where, you know, the kind of the last phase was, uh, you know, people didn't care or even sometimes uh, intentionally got infected or played a kind of a Russian roulette with the virus. Yeah, absolutely. I took I left Sweden for the first time since COVID started last month and did my first flight. And I was really surprised, actually, there's no mask in the airport, no mask on the plane. Like it was like as if nothing had happened. <laughs> and I was felt like I was the only one there with a mask. Um, yeah, it's really amazing to me. I, I wish there would just be we couldn't we be somewhere in the middle where we're not completely locking down, but we're also not completely in denial, you know. Yes, I, I observed that, you know, especially flying from, from Britain, suddenly when the masks were not obligatory, people thought as if it is over, you know, as if at that time they kind of obeyed the authorities who said now masks are not obligatory, although before they were, you know, rightly skeptical about the authorities, because we have seen in many countries, especially UK, that authorities who passed the law often did not obey them themselves, let's say the lockdown uh, laws. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can we talk a little bit about your book, A Passion for Ignorance as well? Yeah. I mean, all of your books are so fantastic um, and I'd love to go through them a bit more for listeners. Thank you. Um, uh, so, so what brought you to write? Well, actually, maybe let's start with the tyranny of choice because they, well, they all feel like they flow one into another very, um, in a in a way that makes sense. You know, going from perversions of love and hate to anxiety to the tyranny of choice to a passion for ignorance, um, and now an apathy. It feels like there's definitely kind of an evolution here. Yeah, it is. Uh, I guess we are sort of uh, circulating usually as authors around some issues which sort of bother us. And uh, yeah, with, with all these books, I was posing, you know, various types of questions which relate to the changes in subjectivity. Um, I have always been interested in how ideology changes people which is why in, in my first book, um, The Spoils of Freedom, I was analyzing the time of the collapse of socialism, that kind of embracement of capitalism that happened in, in the 
post-socialist world and also the ideological changes. You know, people were molded differently uh, in the former Yugoslavia. Um, also the types of identifications that were encouraged uh, were different. And uh, I feel that today we are living in times where it is very important to, to see the new changes which we are having again. You know, we are living in a situation with uh, a lot of uh, new technology and also we are living in really the times of changed relationships, uh, intersubjective relationships and especially relationships towards authorities. Also, we have situation where we have a kind of a growing disbelief uh, where you know, it is the authorities who often encourage a certain kind of a disbelief or very much thrive on it. If we take uh, President Vladimir Putin, his strength in some, some way comes from people not believing anyone anymore in Russia. Um, you know, I remember at the start of the war in Ukraine, um, where there was a TV presenter, um, uh, um, her name was Osyanikova, who uh, uh, unfolded a poster uh, showing for, for a brief moment, you know, her opposition to war on national television. Uh, there was immediately after this event a questioning on the Russian social media whether the event was truth. Is this fake? Is it real? Was this actually, you know, someone opposing the war? Or, you know, was it maybe the government behind her, you know, sort of like doing this kind of a stunt and then not punishing the person much so that they kind of show that they are not as punitive as people have the expect expectancies that they are or, you know, that there was sort of like... Um, uh, uh, fear that they are, you know, so we we can see that this disbelief somehow, I would say, encourages people to be in a permanent state of doubt, which, you know, we who work in the field of psychoanalysis know the importance of doubt, you know, the people who lack uh, doubt might easily have the structure of psychosis, even an untriggered psychosis. But when doubt is encouraged from the position of power, it really helps authoritarian leaders in particular to stay in power. Because, you know, uh, people start disbelieving um, also, I would say, science, which we are seeing, you know, with the pandemic and also with climate change uh, even more. And of course, we have seen in the past so-called merchants of doubt uh, at the time of sort of the debates about the danger of smoking. You know, for example, there was a whole industry on the side of the tobacco um, producers, sellers, you know, which were sort of trying to incite doubt. But I, I would say the doubt is now um, very much kind of incited from the highest echelons of, of authoritarian power. Of course, we should not be so pessimistic in saying that people do not trust anything because there is also a paradoxical situation that we actually trust a lot, but we trust anonymous people. So when we are reading um, reviews online, you know, we might trust on TripAdvisor um, or, you know, Google Maps, uh, people writing something on restaurants or hotels or whatever we are choosing. And 
you know, we trust them uh, quite often, you know, although we know that there might be manipulation behind, uh, some reviews might not be actually humans, but bots or, you know, uh, but here we want, I would say, still a certain kind of, uh, let's say, certainty. So uh, I'm not saying that there is a total distrust, but there is quite a lot of confusion in whom to trust and whom to not. And of course, we have seen now for some decades a change in the authorities, um, how you know, authorities do not necessarily act as classical authorities and you know people do not identify also, uh, you know, in the way um, we are raising children or you know in, in, in the way the communities uh, are organized, we see a certain kind of a change in the structures of authorities, like an influencer today without uh, any serious education might be very much an authority. Um, what I'm also interested in is the steering of passion that is happening uh, in the online world. So I finish my book, uh, Passion for Ignorance, with this really challenging question, which is uh, why are people who are very active in the online world, uh, for example, sharing um, conspiracy theories or fake news in which they do not believe themselves? And I think that this is a quite crucial phenomena because when I was questioning, what do you gain when, when you are spreading news that you are not believing in? Um, I, need to, I needed to recognize actually two emotional gains, which I think from psychoanalytic point of view would be important to look into further. And of course, the first gain is recognition, recognition from your group. Um, uh, like getting likes, uh, you know, having your post shared uh, gives you a certain emotional recognition, which people are craving, which shows that people, however, didn't change that much. You know, this question of who am I for others? What do I want? How do others see me? You know, which psychoanalysis has been analyzing uh, in depth uh, is still present. Uh, but now, you know, likes uh, online are, are, you know, a proof for your uh, temporary proof for your identity or recognition approval. And the second um, approval that, that people might seek is the pain in the other, you know, stroking pain, you know, pushing someone to respond with anger gives another type of a recognition, um, which is on the rise. I think that this kind of an aggression, um, especially in the online world, uh, which you know is also easier to perform because uh, we are not uh, um, in a direct contact when people are uh, shouting on each other in the online world or you know abusing each other. There is this distance uh, where you can easily sort of uh, um, forget that you are dealing with an actual human uh, person who has feelings. You do not observe the feelings immediately, but from the reaction, you know, get, get, let's get certain kind of uh, recognition you are craving. No, those are great points that there's so many different directions we could go from here. Um, one thing that's interesting, as you're pointing out, people that are kind of peddling these untruths that they themselves don't believe. And recently, at least one of these people has gone to court in the U.S. and actually was was uh, found guilty and has to pay uh, pay to the to the victims. 
uh, of his slander. And I wonder about that. I mean, I hope to see more of that, but I wonder what you think about that because it's, it feels like it's been years and years and years of people just blatantly lying and lying and spreading these untruths with no accountability whatsoever. And I wonder if there might be some sort of shift where people will be held accountable and how, you know, how that could be even possible legally. Yes, and there is a a very interesting uh, new legal case coming in the United States, which involves Fox News, um, you know, because they have been spreading uh, disinformation about Trump's um, uh, uh, election. Uh, loss. Um, and um, now the, the company which is involved in, in the, uh, I think, making of the voting machines or managing of this, uh, they are suing the, the corporation for this, uh, for the lies. They, they were also spreading about the fault in the, the voting system mm-hmm. itself. Um, now, the question now is, uh, in a way, whether Uh, the company, Fox News in this case, is responsible for spreading the news, Um, who is in a way, I would say, the the owner of of the news. Um, In some arguments that the lawyers um, for um, Fox News are using, this is not yet, uh, you know, coming, the case is not yet uh, tried, but the kind of debates that are happening now in the preparation for the trial are uh, about the First Amendment, uh, the freedom of speech, and you know one of quite absurd um, interpretation is that, let's say, if you are uh, a television company uh, and you are sort of spreading fake news um, or you know lies. Uh, through the mouth of someone else, uh, you might not be responsible. This is like one of the arguments that uh, Fox News is trying to use, that in their television, if there are people, let's say politicians or or other public personalities who are, let's say, saying or who were saying that, uh, you know, there was election fraud, uh, although they were spreading actually this news continuously, they try to be to claim that they are not liable because of the First Amendment, which pertains to that individual person, you know, um, uttering those statements. Mm. And of course, Fox News has gotten away with this so long, saying they're news entertainment, <laughs> not real news, you know. Exactly. Is... And that, you know, mixing of entertainment and news, I think it's really contributing to quite a lot of the problem of misinformation. For me, you know, misinformation in regards to uh, the vac- vaccination was incredible, you know, very painful to watch. And I think that uh, we can imagine in the near future very similar type of misinformations related to climate change, which is becoming really one of the most important global problems. No, absolutely. And and making these things like political issues and points of political debate instead of just like, this is happening, this is the scientific reality, how are we going to address it, you know? Yeah. I think that's why I think when I when I saw everyone in the airports, you know, and was like, everyone's in COVID denial, I think I had a bit of an existential crisis because um it just was like a microcosm of the bigger picture of the climate crisis denial and how like everyone seems to be just trying to kind of 
continue to go about their day and do, do the things they enjoy and go on vacation and visit people. I, I traveled for a wedding, you know, it's like, okay, let's do the things we we do in our lives. Um, but then there's this like looming, you know, existential threat that's, uh, I think, much more present and closer than everyone seems to want to admit. Yeah, we also had that, you know, terrible summer in Slovenia, extreme temperatures, uh, drought. Um, similarly, in, in the UK, you know, when I was in the UK, there's the grass is yellow, you know, it's real, real change, even a vis- visual change. And we also, you know, near the coast had towns which were sort of starting to lack water, as we have seen in Spain. Uh, so things are really changing rapidly in regard to the weather. And now, just yesterday, we had like a tornado in Ljubljana, which is like the first time. And, wow. you know, 70 roofs were taken off, which is incredible. Just for a very short time, you know, there was sort of like a vortex uh, in the air of wind, strong winds, which were sort of up to 100 kilometers um, and you know it was a shock because uh, you know some people got injured uh, trees were falling now this is a city which did not experience this kind of uh, weather so I'm, I'm very skeptical about how we will cope physically and psychologically with what is to come because we can imagine you know conflicts inside the states you know, for food, for, you know, living conditions, also new new migration. And whenever this kind of catastrophic situations happens, happen, they open the door to populist leaders who are often, you know, opening kind of a false hopes, giving, you know, sort of like kind of a fantasies about how they will solve the situation of finding culprits, usually in the minorities or migrants. Um, and yeah, my fear is that democracy is really on the decline. There is an interesting study actually coming from Sweden, which has analyzed, uh, uh, you know, the decline of democracy around the world, where, you know, today almost three quarters of countries around the world are run by, you know, sort of authoritarian or authoritarian leading leader, leader, uh, leaders. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's even happening in Sweden right now. There's an election coming coming up in September. It's the first election I will be able to vote in. But the, the same thing has happened. You know, there's a there's a war and people have to flee and we welcome them because that's what you do. It's the international law. Then there's this backlash from people uh, in this populist party, you know, is gain, gaining power. And, you know, just, uh, yeah, I'm voting, hoping to keep them out of power, basically, because it's a very bad road. It doesn't go anywhere good. And it's just a a reaction. People are being reactionary instead of looking at the big picture, you know. Yeah, that's happening in a lot of countries around Europe. And it can get worse in the winter when we will be facing, you know, really a serious a crisis, you know, with uh, energy, heating, the costs of living. 
yeah, the car, the electricity is is going to be really expensive this year as it was last year. It's going to be even worse. And we can expect more of that. Like you said, there's going to be ongoing wars. It's going to be more and more migration. These natural disasters. I mean, I think about this all the time because and also the underreporting of everything, because as much as we see everything on the news so much and people feel overwhelmed, there's so there's so only a fragment of what's happening is reported. Like I, I follow in order to get news from the U.S., I follow a lawyer who sends out a newsletter every Sunday because she actually like writes statistics about what's going on. And, and there's none of this like advertising and entertainment news factor. Um, and she reports the number of mass shootings in the U.S. every week. And every I mean, this last week, there was like 25 or 20 something shootings in mass shootings. And, you know, people I post these regularly just to try to keep people aware of this issue. And, you know, a lot of people say I live in that town or I live in that city and I didn't even hear anything about that on the local news. You know, it's well, not even making news. Yeah. <clears throat> but, you know, newspapers have been in, on decline uh also, the respect for serious work of journalists, you know, has been uh, in decline also from publishing houses themselves, you know, uh, the, the, the kind of profession of uh, journalists has lost respect some time ago uh, with cutting costs also, you know, the and of course, this infotainment and of course, with the parallel world now of the social media, uh, for the serious kind of news companies, it's very hard to kind of keep the pace and, you know, to be to keep being afloat. Yeah, especially when these things are posted immediately. And then I see so often, you know, one one source posts something and then everyone's kind of referencing that. Um, and it, yeah, it hasn't been researched. It's just like someone found this thing out, they posted it and then it's all over the place, you know rather than like serious journalism where they really get to what's going on at the root of the issue. Yeah, I agree. And uh, with my study on people closing down, I've seen that even very intelligent people uh, in this kind of a cacophony of voices uh, do not want to be disturbed anymore and maybe follow just, you know, a few sources, uh, as you mentioned, you know, some trustworthy bloggers or, you know, just very limited uh, news. Um, I've seen, I see this uh, in authoritarian countries where a lot of my uh, friends can survive only in such a way that actually they stop following news at all, the official news, uh, which is, you know, full of misinformation or kind of glorification of the authoritarian leader in charge. And, you know, they are living in their bubbles, trying to somehow um, keep their sanity, I would say, and being able to focus on, on whatever they are doing. Yeah, it's a challenge. And I remember what else I was going to say is uh, sometimes people look for news that just validates what they what they already believe. So as soon as yeah. they find any source that's like, oh, yeah, see, that's what I think, too, then it ends there, you know. Yeah, because we live in information bubble where, you know, we just need to kind of have that kind of a confirmation, which is why it's interesting to, to observe research, which is trying to break those bubbles, you know, when people are, you know, getting news from another camp, uh, if they're open to it, their opinions might slightly change or they might be a little bit more open, more tolerant to other points of view. 
So I think that, uh, that the biggest questions will be in the future, really, who controls this kind of a world of information? We are leaving it in the hands of a couple of big private companies, you know, Google, Facebook, and, and uh, those big companies are in charge of information, are in charge of the algorithms, which are secret, are in charge of the big data, which they are often selling or you know using for advertising purposes. Or we have seen with the Cambridge Analytica, the big data can be used to manipulate people's uh, uh, political uh, opinions. So I think that here a global action is is really needed to change uh, this uh, functioning of the of the news in the new social media. But I don't see much let's say, uh, energy or, you know, kind of a strategy globally, you know, to prevent the big companies to continue profit from the data, uh, from the, you know, people who are uh, very much relying on their um, their services. Absolutely. It reminds me of the, the era of the monopolies from like the Industrial Revolution and the, these, those had to be broken up. And it's like so few people uh, control the, the kind of <laughs> information highway that's going out globally and is affecting billions of people, you know, and people's thinking. And and, the, and those few people are all kind of the same kind of person. You know? It's like a very, a very, very small segment of the poor population has a huge influence on what everybody else is consuming that's very yeah. disturbing and what also bothers me is this structural ignorance which is embedded now in in the way information are delivered for example um, some in-depth information might be hard to come is be, be behind a paywall even scientific research you know is sometimes hard to be accessed. You know, scientists are writing scientific articles for free, but um, it's very expensive to to read them. You know, one needs to pay for access to uh, scientific journals, uh, which is why you know we are living in the kind of knowledge based society, presumably. But it is better to say that we are living in an ignorance based society where you know trademarks, copyrights, uh, paywalls are actually limiting people's access to important new knowledge, especially, let's say, I would say, technical and scientific knowledge. Yeah, and what a shame that is where we have this this plethora of information and this way for everyone to be able to access it that, you know, you can imagine. Imagine if there was like this huge online library, like database that people could just access and read these articles for free, like a public library. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, some scientists are trying to make, you know, this kind of pools of knowledge so that, you know, scientists in other countries might have access to it. Uh, but, you know, I think it's not enough. Yeah, we need a big overhaul. And how to organize that overhaul, you know, like you said, globally, like there really needs... And it's the same thing with the, with the climate crisis. I mean, uh, when I was traveling before before the pandemic started, I remember seeing like, you know, traveling through like more countrysides of countries and not the kind of main tourist areas where people would go and seeing so much you know, plastic garbage and like piles of trash. And, uh, you know, this is this such a same thing. The issue is even greater than we realized with like pollution. And um, yeah, and how it really felt like 
when I would see all of that, we really need like a, a concerted effort together, like globally, where nations like really like step up and we start yeah, taking care of this, like literally just like step by step <laughs> cleaning things up. Yeah, and that's why, you know, some political scientists are questioning whether we need some enlightened form of populism on the side of, you know, sort of like climate change battle, how to, you know, kind of mobilize people because Extinction Rebellion group, for example, Greta Thunberg, they they had some influence nonetheless, although, you know, not the influence to the highest echelons of power, but nonetheless in mobilizing people. So taking populism outside of the hands of the authoritarian leaders, reinterpreting it into sort of like fighting for democracy and, you know, climate change is one way, one path that some political scientists are kind of thinking through. Because as we know from past studies on populism, especially by Ernesto Laclauche and Talmouf, populism is not necessarily linked to the right wing. Uh, you know, it can be co-opted by the left-leaning uh, uh, politicians. Um, but of course, there is a battle in society of, you know, how populism works or who, you know, sort of interprets the, the causes in a populist way. Yeah, that's a really good point. How do we mobilize instead of waiting for the powers that be to do something about it? How, how do we mobilize ourselves? Yeah, in Slovenia, we had a lot of mobilizations the last two years because we had an authoritarian-leaning previous government. Uh, happily, that there was a change in government uh, at the start of this year, but it was a government which was sort of leaning in the direction of uh, Viktor Orban, the uh, Hungarian autocrat. And uh, we had like two years of mobilizations on the streets, uh, Every Friday, uh, bicycling uh, um, of people, you know, like hundreds, thousands of people sometimes protesting the government by, you know, going uh, on the bikes because at the time of the lockdowns, exercise was allowed, <laughs> but protests were not. However, you know, you can do a protest uh, biking around the city. And, you know, this mobilization that happened, which uh, really relied on many NGOs, um, a lot of youth organizations um, at the end, you know, gave us the results, which is a change of government. Uh, but it was important to mobilize people, you know, on all fronts of life. Uh, the first mobilization started around a referendum over clean water, where happily, you know, people were mobilized because they felt that it is an issue that touches them. And there were some attempts to change legislation about water, which would allow um, private companies more access or sort of building closer to the sea, uh, seashore or river shores. And, you know, people opposed it because they felt strongly um, against such uh, legislation. And, you know, happily, the similar type of mobilization continued with the general elections, where, you know, people came out voting in huge numbers, which did not happen before in the previous elections. So the feeling of threat, threat to democracy, happily at this moment was enough. Uh, but of course, a passivity might come again and with us sometimes people don't go to voting simply because it's a sunny Sunday and they prefer you know to go and have a picnic in the nature 
No, totally. That totally happens. I mean, the I basically have been voting since the 2000 election with Bush v. Gore. Um, and I, I recently saw that Fox News has been around for 25 years. So just, just before then, they must have started in 97, I guess then. Um, so they've always been around for the elections I've been voting in. And yeah, it was like, it was so important to vote then. And I was in Florida and, you know, Bush's brother, Jeb Bush was the governor of Florida. And then it just happened to have like all of these, you know, ballots that they couldn't find in the, yeah. in the state that I was in, et cetera. And then we ended up with Bush and you know people came out to try for the second election but you know then 9-11 had happened and people got really you know patriotic populist and he won that too won that too and, <laughs> and then and then we got Obama in there and I really feel like uh the people who were around for Obama but not for the Bush era things got like people got much more yeah, passive and like happy and complacent and like, see, America is doing better, you know, like, look at us. And then, you know, now we ended up with this. I, I like to use uh, I like <laughs> to use those election problems from Florida uh, when I'm teaching uh, some sort of basic psychoanalytic um, uh, ideas of structure, you know, the structure of neurosis, structure of psychosis and structure of perversion, because that I remember those debates which were about the you know the machines whether the machines were faulty or not the, the voting machines uh, you probably remember that uh, suddenly we learned that the term chat mm -hmm. chat a little round thing that you know you punch uh, and should kind of fall out uh, you know when you are voting uh, when the voting machine works properly and then you had two problems the hanging chat and the pregnant chat. So when the machine only kind of touched the ballot, but did not fully, you know, punch it, you know, so the chat did not fall out. And I like to kind of use that as an example, you know, when you have a properly voting machine, you know, the you have a structure of neurosis. Uh, you know the lack, the lack, uh, uh, the, the lack um, uh, uh, emerges the sort of like the structural lack um, in in the subjectivity when you don't have a you know um this kind of a fully functioning let's say symbolic law uh the prohibition of incest then you might have a hanging chat uh, like kind of a structure of perversion where then the subject tries to sort of complete uh, often in a kind of a fantasy way uh, castration um, you know, to, to kind of detach that chat, of course, unsuccessfully. And then, you know, you have the pregnant chat with uh, the case, with the structure of psychosis, where the machine kind of operated, you know, language, however, you know, not fully. So the lack, um, the symbolic castration did not become fully operative. Oh my God, I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, so your election problems give me some material to work on in the psychoanalytic domain. No, that's amazing. And I, I remember that election and all those problems very well. And I also remember on election night, because I was 23, and um, I also remember on election night that uh, Fox News announced first that Bush had won. And I remember, even though I wasn't very worldly at the time you know i remember going nobody else has announced that and then it was like as soon as they announced it it was like everyone started announcing it and and even then i felt like this is very strange how this is working and maybe that's what got me interested in psychoanalysis no that was definitely my mother but 
<laughs> well, it's so nice talking to you. Is there anything that you wanted to be men mentioned that you didn't we didn't get to yet? Was there anything else coming up or any events or anything that you wanted to mention? Um, yeah, okay. Um, one of the um, projects that I'm working on at the Institute of Criminology at the Faculty of Law in Slovenia, where I'm working, is a research on whom to save at the time of the pandemic. Um, so we are doing um, a research on triage and COVID-19. And this has been an interesting study because it involves interesting philosophical uh, analysis of what un underpins ethical decisions uh, nowadays. Uh, you know, the situation of pandemics forced us to start thinking of which criteria um, the countries will embrace in case of shortage of uh, um, beds in intensive care units, shortage of ventilators, or even uh, we were thinking shortage of vaccines or you know drugs for COVID. And interestingly, countries adopted quite different you know kind of policy. Some countries wanted to embrace total egalitarianism. However, egalitarianism might rely on who comes first. You know, first comes first, uh, gets the treatment. But people might live far away. People might not have the car or other possibilities to even come to the hospitals. So egalitarian treatment, egalitarian approach is problematic, which is why quite a lot of countries started adopting more of a utilitarian approach where you know there are kind of reasoning that maybe we should um, prioritize um, saving uh, many lives or you know the, the question becomes there also how do you make a hierarchy let's say between which life is valuable which isn't so quite a lot of painful issues sort of came into, into this uh, reasoning. And uh, when the countries tried to write out, you know, the kind of the rules, who will be given uh, priority treatment in case of uh, the lack of, uh, let's say, beds in the hospital and, or so on. Um, an important issue also emerged uh, between, you know, ex ante and ex post triage. Many times it is, let's say, for doctors easier to decide when two people are, you know, competing for the same bed uh, and have, let's say, similar types of, uh, let's say, health problems. Um, they might, let's say, decide that one gets the bed, one doesn't more easily than if some person is already, in, let's say, occupying the bed, uh, but has fewer chances to survive and then comes someone who would have better chances to survive and which means that you would need to disconnect the first person and give the option to the second person so this kind of uh, uh, choices tragic choices was uh, were something that we looked upon uh, with my team at the institute we are still working on it and we are writing an english book um, about this ethical, uh, legal, and medical dilemmas in regard to triage in the in the times of uh, the pandemic, because we can imagine that first this pandemic is not yet over, but also the next ones 
are about to happen uh, and uh, for doctors uh, and other personnel in the hospitals it is incredibly stressful anxiety provoking guilt-ridden to deal with these questions if there are no guidances also if there is no help to them making the decision and some countries germany for example is also proposing that with this kind of a life death decisions uh, there should be a broader consensus which means that maybe in the team which will be you know making the decision at the end there should be someone who is not a doctor uh, maybe an ethicist or or uh, or a nurse at least a nurse i would say or a social worker or someone so that uh, you know you have at least six eyes they say so three people but uh, making the decision which kind of alleviates the feeling of anxiety and guilt of let's say the the doctor who is treating the patient wow that's very intense and important work i'm so glad you're doing that um, and people, these are the things that people need to keep in mind that were happening in the beginning of the pandemic. And like you said, this pandemic is one, it's a symptom of the greater climate issues and it's just going to keep happening. Um, so we need to yeah, figure out how we're going to continue to deal with these things. And uh, stop being in denial, which we have been already before this pandemic, because there was quite a lot of research in the last year's decade about the impending pandemics which um, you know the researchers uh, analyzed uh, when they were looking at the changes in habitat, uh, the da danger of sort of uh, the jump of the virus from uh, wild animals to domestic animals to, or humans because of the exploitation that is happening in many parts of the world of nature, uh, you know, the monocultures, also the mining industry, all this are sort of coming into the habitat where, you know, we are, meeting much more of the you know wild animals than before where this kind of a virus transmission can happen and of course with climate change and you know continuation of all the exploitation that neoliberalism embraces uh, all the inequalities around the world i think we can definitely expect uh, a, a repetition of a pandemic that we lived through and which unfortunately of course is not yet even finished Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Renata Salichel. For more, you can visit her website, renatasalichel.com. That's R-E-N-A-T-A-S-A-L-E-C-L.com. And be sure to visit Dr. Nestor Bronstein's website, nestorbronstein.com, N-E-S-T-O-R-B-R-A-U-N-S-T-E-I-N.com. His writings are truly fantastic, and he lives on through them and through those lives that he touched. As always, you can find me on social media at rawsin underscore, that's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore, on Instagram and Twitter, and on TikTok at Dr. Vanessa Sinclair 23. 
Links to everything can be found via Rendering Unconscious website, renderingunconscious.org, and my website, drvanessasinclair.net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa23Carl. Thank you so much to everyone in our Patreon community. Your support is greatly appreciated. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapar Books, 2019. For more information, you can visit the publisher's website, trapar.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. And now the song, Solitude, Realm of the Shadow, from the album Follow My Voice, a collaboration I did with Per Olund. I love solitude. Being around for me, it's physically revolting to be. I state categorically that the realm of the flesh, sense, matter, is an illusory form that clothes the realm of the shadow. We, the most fundamental of experiences, slide that the incarnate co-substantial worlds or order my skin as some form of agency. I love solitude. Being around for me, it's physically revolting to be. The shadow is vulnerable, abducted. We must find them again, along with an alphabet of mistrust, vulnerable, able to separate, yet seeing an impossibility and is to lie. The artist is in a position to connect the physical, emotional, shared so that it may ignite thoughts. We, the most fundamental of experiences, slide that the incarnate co-substantial worlds or order my skin as some form of agency.